Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all of our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today, our podcast will feature our The Good Book Club discussion of How to Be Perfect, the correct answer to every moral question by Michael Schur, creator of The Good Place. This wonderful and whimsical book delves into the hard philosophical questions in a very accessible and entertaining way. If you never thought you'd be able to understand or discuss the big philosophical theories of the ages, this book will prove you wrong. We absolutely loved reading and talking about this book, and we hope you find this discussion as wonderful as we did. This book club meeting was originally held on December 11th, 2022. Welcome, everybody, to the Good Book Club. It is our December meeting, and we're all looking extremely festive this morning. This is really exciting. So welcome, and especially welcome to those of you that haven't been with us before. We're really excited that you've joined us. So we always start out each of our meetings by reading our The Good Book Club mission statement. And since Landon is wearing a Santa hat, I thought he should be the one to read that today. All right. The, the Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experience relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, thank you very much, Landon. And for those of you that are joining us for the first time, that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what we're about and what we're hoping to accomplish. So um, we always have announcements at the top of our discussion. So my first announcement is just a huge thank you to our book club members in California. We went down there for a field trip to see Book of Mormon, the musical, and it was just amazing. And Karen, we had an incredible party at her house and Bruce just took care of so many details and we got to hang out with Mylene and and others and it was just wonderful so we just want to say thank you to you guys our california contingent of the book club it was just amazing and you guys were so wonderful and and we want to plan something again soon so thank you everybody that was really fun so some upcoming events on our the good book club calendar on monday the 19th and this fits in right with our next book which is about astronomy we are having a private planetarium event at um, UVU. This is in Orem in the Pope Science Building. It's going to be at 7 p.m. And a friend of ours who is the head of the astronomy department is going to be talking to us about black holes and dark matter and also discussing the winter solstice because this is kind of a, a winter solstice celebration too. So for those of you that are in the area, um, we're hoping you'll be able to come. Um, you can message me or I'll make sure I put more information out, but it's Monday, December 19th, 7 p.m. on the UVU campus, and that's in Orem. So we hope that um, you can join and you can invite anybody you want. I think we can have upwards of 45 people. So anyone else who's interested, bring your families, bring whoever. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah. And and, and this is a secular uh, activity yeah. in that uh, we're, we're inviting people who maybe aren't part of the book club, but maybe right. uh, believing Mormons and stuff. So we want to keep the conversation uh, that way. We know the person uh, conducting this is a is a member and so we want to uh, keep that in mind yep 
Yeah, it's going to be really fun. Um, that brings us to our next book, a quick announcement. We're going to talk about it a little bit later after our regular discussion. We are reading Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. This is going to be really, really cool. So um, our discussion leader is Joe, and he'll be delving a little bit more into it with a preview at the end of our book club discussion today. So also speaking of books, coming up in January, very end of January, we have a bonus event um, where Alyssa Wall is going to be talking to us. If anybody watched um, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, the story of Warren Jeffs, um, she is the person who basically took him down by being able to come forward. And her book is Stolen Innocence. So if you'd like to kind of read that in addition to our regular book club book, um, we're going to be talking to her in January. You do not have to have read the book um, to come to the event. You can just come and, and hear her, her talk. But I think it'd be great if some of us did have a chance to read it. So that's Stolen Innocence. And also in January, another bonus event, we're going to have RFM come talk to us. And again... He's uh, a little, <laughs> I asked him, I said, so can you tell me what day you're going to be talking to the book club? And he sent me a clip from Casablanca where Rick says, I don't make plans that far in advance. So <laughs> he's so funny. It may be just a very quick pop-up meeting, but he is going to come talk to us at some point in January. So look forward to that. And I'll get information out on that as soon as he gives it to me. <laughs> And then looking way into the future, but for those of us that are in the area, we definitely want to put this on our calendar. Um, I have been evangelizing this incredible documentary, The Return of Elder Pingree, by Emmy Award-winning um, documentary filmmaker Jeff Pingree. Um, this is a documentary about Jeff returning to his mission um, years later to interact with the people and kind of make sense of his experience there. And we are hosting a screening um, along with uh, Mormon Book Reviews and Mormon Stories. It's kind of a collaboration. Jeff is going to be coming into town. This is going to be at Bruvies and we're going to watch the film and also have a Q&A. So this is going to be, I mean, it's right around Valentine's Day. What could be more romantic? So for those of us in the area, this is going to be a really, really cool event. So just kind of put that on your calendar, put a pin in it uh, for a couple months from now. It's, it's going to be really nice. And then we'll briefly go into media on the radar. Um, for those of you that are interested in not just books, but things that are in the media, we have kind of an offshoot of the Good Book Club. It's called the Good Media Club. It's just a Facebook page where we throw information about what's going on in the media. Um, you can just uh, look that up on Facebook and, and join if you'd like, if you're interested in that. And also we have the Good Book Club podcast, which is where we turn our book club meetings into podcast format. And you can find that, I think, on all the major podcast platforms, hopefully. And that's just the Good Book Club podcast. And then um, another um, podcast that involves book club members is Mormonish. Landon and I are the co-hosts of that. And a lot of the people that we talk to are our book club members. So number one, um, wait for our phone call because <laughs> we want to talk to you. And also it's fun to get to know some of our other book club members and, and kind of their stories. So that's, and that's also, that's on, available on YouTube. You can search it and also just on any of the, the other podcast formats. And that's Mormonish. So. Woo! Sacrament meeting announcements. So now this brings us to our book today, How to Be Perfect. Our discussion leader is Spencer, and he is the one that suggested this book. He said that he and his wife had read it and just loved it. And I just found the whole concept so interesting because I think when a lot of us step away from the church, you hear, well, how will you teach your children to be ethical or moral? Or how will you be ethical or moral now? And 
We definitely got a dose of that question. So we're very excited to turn it all over to Spencer now and let's discuss. I think so. Yeah, I thought, I guess we're not going to have a hymn. <laughs> well, we can if you want, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. Unless Tom's singing. Oh. Um, um, it, it, if we do a hymn, it's choose the right. It oh. should be choose the right. Very ethical. There hymn. you go. That's right. Can you see my uh, slides here? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so like uh, Rebecca mentioned, like I read this about a year ago with my wife. We really liked it, mostly because we really love The Good Place um, as a TV show. And um, and also, you know, I took a philosophy class as a general ed requirement uh, in my undergrad, and I hated it. I remember hating it because the guy was like so subjective and and nuanced and non-dogmatic in his perspective. And I remember actually quoting the church in my responses in terms of like what's right and what's wrong. And I remember doing that. And I don't remember exactly if I got a good grade or not in that class, but um, it was just, it always was off-putting to me because to me it was like objective, objective truth. And it's just, you just have to uh, give of yourself to obey whatever the authority figure says. And so this was very refreshing to see it from new eyes. Um, so I'll, I'll just give a quick introduction of the book. And then I figure we can just kind of like let the discussion go where it goes. Cause I think we could go in all sorts of directions. And I think a lot of people probably had some great insights here. Um, but the author is Michael Schur. And you've probably seen a lot of the shows that he has written. So he was involved in first The Office, then I think he got involved in Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and now, and he was the um, creator of The Good Place as well. So, um, and as, you know, in the book, he mentions that as he was writing for The Good Place, he's always been interested in philosophy, but he kind of put all of his ideas together in the creation of this book as, as part of, you know, preparing. And just some of the topics that he talks about, I mean, I'm not going to go over each of these but, you know, I, I went back through the book and there was actually a lot, uh, even just, you know, a couple pages here and there of different parts. But um, he talked about a lot of different ideals or, or views of, of ethics. And he I think, you know, you could probably narrow it down to four main ones that he keeps referring back to. Um, that would be virtue ethics by Aristotle, utilitarianism or consequentialism by Jeremy Bentham and, and John Stuart Mill. Um, deontology, that, uh, that's from Immanuel Kant most, mostly, and then contractualism by T.M. Scanlon. Um, and he's, uh, that, that one's more recent. Um, that one, there's a book I think called What We Owe to Each Other. And, and so it's a little bit more recent. And I was actually a little bit surprised that a lot of these philosophical views were like in the 1900s. Like a lot of this is actually pretty, recent this this development but other issues other conflicts that were explored um ubuntu which i thought was really interesting an african philosophical worldview that it's like a very different than western um philosophy moral exhaustion which is his own term that he really wanted to trademark um throughout the book um the idea of shame versus guilt i thought was really interesting i'm sure that we could probably get into a discussion there Objectivism by Ayn, uh, Ayn Rand. I don't know how to pronounce the first, her first name. Um, the happiness pump it's idea. Ayn. Ayn, Ayn Rand. Rand. Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> she did it to sound like I. 
<laughs> no, I'm yeah, there you go. I, I believe it once you wanted it to sound like I, you know. Oh, I, okay. I am the right. um, Moral dessert. And that's not a typo. Uh, moral dessert, getting your just desserts, I guess. Mindfulness, uh, pragmatism, the Overton window, uh, effective altruism, and Peter Singer, who is like a very hardcore utilitarian, um, is a very hardcore utilitarian. Chick-fil-A, COVID masking, the Washington now commanders, existentialism, and the idea of like luck and privilege were all explored in this through a lot of different fun examples. And so um, for those of you who maybe didn't have a chance to read all of it, we'll kind of go through, I guess, each of the main four ones and then a few of these other things while we're going through it. But I feel like as, as ideas come up, we should uh, just kind of let it go where it goes. So the first kind of topic that he brings up is this idea. Well, let me go back to um, the trolley problem first, I think. And the trolley problem, well, I'll go to virtue ethics. That's fine. That's where he goes first. Virtue ethics was uh, the first one that he talks about, and it's Aristotle. And the basic idea here is that instead of trying to become, instead of trying to decide whether to do the right thing or not, you should work on trying to become a virtuous person. And by and doing that requires you to find some golden mean between every virtue and vice that might exist. So on one end of the spectrum, you could be very um, passive. And on the other end of the spectrum, you could be very angry. And the idea is you don't want to be angry all the time. You don't want to be uh, too angry um, or else you're just going to be a mean old crotchety person and or, but you also don't want to be passive all the time. Otherwise, when an injustice has happened or, you know, somebody's doing something to someone you love, you're just going to sit back and let it happen. So you have to find this like golden mean. And the human goal of all of this is, uh, of the human goal of everything is, is just to flourish. And by obtaining this golden mean, uh, we become less annoying and we flourish. So I don't know if anybody had any thoughts on this one. Uh, Jackie, I think you were... Had your hand raised? Yes, thank you. Um, my husband and I were talking about this one. And uh, of course, we related it to the church. Um, you know, with loyalty and obedience, um, we said, can you be too, you know, look what happens when you're too obedient and too loyal. You know, it becomes, you know, blind. And where's the golden mean um, of at what point do you say, you know, you got to, you got to call it and say, this is unethical behavior, but if it's just blind obedience, you know, look where the extremes take you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It seems like sometimes, uh, the church's like emphasis on obedience was like at all costs, like just take it and, and, and don't question, which means that like automatically, if it's a black or white, that's automatically wrong. It doesn't even matter which side it takes. If it's, uh, you know, in, according to Aristotle here. Um, yeah, that's great. Anybody else have anything? We can kind of move to the next one, I think, is we're kind of introducing stuff if you want. So I thought one thing that really is prevalent throughout, those of you who are familiar with philosophy, you'll see this a lot, the trolley problem. The idea behind the trolley problem, for those of you who didn't read the book, was just this idea that you've got a switch right here and you're the person with the switch and the trolley is currently on a path 
to kill five people that are on the tracks. But if you flip the switch, it will only kill one person. So the question is, do you flip the switch? Is this a good idea or not? And as he, you know, the author rightfully, I think, notes, most people would immediately say, of course, I would flip the switch. Who would not flip the switch? This makes total sense. Um, but one of the interesting things about this is you can kind of change things up in the trolley problem. And you could create an infinite number of different iterations. Now, in The Good Place, those of you who haven't seen it yet, Mike, this uh, Michael character is an interesting character. Um, he thought that the objective was maybe to kill all six people somehow. And so that was his uh, that was his goal in the in the trolley problem. But, you know, you could you could incorporate all sorts of different things like in the bottom left. What if you have a third switch and you can make it go around, but then there's a 50 50 probability of left or right. Somehow you've absolved yourself of some sort of introduced chance into the equation. Or uh, maybe you've already promised the person that you wouldn't run them over. Um, you know, all of these different iterations uh, that could exist in the trolley problem. And that's where things get really interesting because then you think, well, why did I, why did I want to flip the switch in the first place? Like, what is it about, what, what is it that makes something a good decision or a bad decision? And that's when he starts to introduce utilitarianism, which is this idea that what we want to do is maximize total happiness and minimize total uh, uh, dolores or uh, total damage that's done. And so we want to somehow be able to measure at a universal level um, total happiness that would be derived from our decision. And what's important is maximizing the intensity, the duration, the certainty, propinquity, fecundity, purity, and extent of happiness across the board. And with the first trolley problem, this makes a lot of sense because only one person's dying instead of five. So you've sort of the, the accounting, it's easy to say is, is better if you flip the switch, but it gets a little harder in certain situations. Yeah, Rebecca? Unmute myself here. Um, I was sort of laughing when I thought about the trolley problem because I thought, isn't that our foundational uh, Book of Mormon story? It is better that one person perish on the trolley tracks than an entire nation uh, not be run over. I mean, it really is the question, right? Laban had to be killed. He was on the tracks. So right there, you start with that dilemma and, and the answer in the scriptures is, is clear. I, I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Yeah, Bruce? Yeah, I just, you know, in that discussion, you know, maximizing the utility, um, you've got two people who need life-saving kidneys. Well, let's just kill one person to save two people's lives. And, you know, and then you can harvest the rest of their organs. And then you're going like, okay, that's, that gets into a very slippery slope. So I enjoyed the discussion of that. Yeah, me too. I think, yeah, that gets into the, the next top, uh, topic, I think, pretty well. And I think there's a lot of utilitarianism in the Bible and in the scriptures where it's like, well, you know, in order to maximize all good, we've got to like suffer, basically. And so it, very interesting. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, so when I was growing up in the church, uh, when I was a teenager, there was a church movie that used basically used the trolley problem to show the, the necessity of the atonement. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that or saw that, but it was a father who 
whose job was having to do with the railroad. And he's out, there's something wrong with the switch and he has to hold the lever in place. But then his young son comes running on the tracks toward him and there's a train coming the other way. And he knows that if he lets go of the lever, all of those people on the train are gonna die. But his son is coming toward him. And it's extremely manipulative, emotional, emotionally. And at the time, when they had the youth side and they would get this movie, so full year. So I times or nine or ten times, whatever it was. And, you know, it's interesting how the church used this ex exact example. And where Rebecca mentioned the one person on the track being Laban. But there's this example with it being Christ, right? And so Christ had to die. So all the people on the train, all of us, could live. And then, of course, what we owe to Christ um, because of that. Um, it's a, it, it was really hard as a teenager to see that. And of course, you're manipulated um, emotionally. And I don't think anyone realized, or at least that's my supposition, that none of the adults thought, oh, we're manipulating these kids so that they will have this testimony of the, the atonement. But of course, the showing of the film was always followed by a testimony meeting. So it's just interesting to see how that is used. I think the trolley problem for me, and we have a, a card game at home called the trolley problem and has all these different cards that you lay, you have teens and you lay the cards on the track and you're trying to get the moderator to choose your side of the track as the most beneficial to, you know, to save those people. And there's all these different scenarios, you know, a hundred cards or whatever, all these different um, iterations of the trolley problem. Um, but it's all manufactured, you know, it's like most of these, you're never going to encounter them in real life. So to me, it's just, um, it's interesting discussion uh, when we talk about the trolley problem to get us to think. Um, but then looking at how we apply this in real life because things are so complex. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Nancy. I remember that video as a youth watching it and it was absolutely a gut punch. And I think maybe it's just because it's so, uh, the imagery of it makes it worse. Like it's not any different than the actual atonement being potentially immoral in and of itself, but the the imagery of a child dying and like the dad watching was just, it was awful. Yeah, it, was, it was really awful. And also because it doesn't, you know, in hindsight, I can see, well, that doesn't really correlate to the message of the atonement, where you mm -hmm. have someone choosing an adult person. I mean, the narrative, right, is Christ chose this. Yeah, and he chose to do it in the garden. He accepted this and then he went through with it. But a little child, that little four or five year old boy running down the tracks is not the equivalent of of Jesus making that same choice. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bruce, did you have something? I yeah. Think uh, no, I just want to. Oh, you're muted again. Sorry. 
I'm muting everybody and I'm muting myself. Uh, I just want to go back when you mentioned that you took a philosophy class and you gave the the kind of Mormon viewpoint and stuff. Was that at BYU or a non-Mormon university? Where was the philosophy class at? It was at UVU. Uh, and the philosophy professor was clearly, in my opinion, not Mormon, but he might have been, and he might just not have fit the mold of what I thought a Mormon should be, <laughs> looking back. So he was from Canada. He was a little too liberal for my taste as a 20-year-old something. Well, and, and a Mormon kid being introduced to the church not being the total moral arbiter of everything. Yeah. It would have blown my mind and I wasn't a very good Mormon. So yeah. Yeah, it was it was awful. I just remember thinking, I hate these essays that I have to write. This is the worst. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. Brian. Um, Brian, Brian, did you are you? Sorry. Yes, sorry. Oh, there. Um, what was going on with my audio? No, I just wanted to um, echo a little bit what Nancy said, because I remember that video, too. Um, I guess it's an interesting uh, variant of the trolley problem to think about. But um, as far as an analogy to the atonement, it's awful. Because um, for the reason Nancy said, or someone said about um, not being an adult making that decision. But on the other hand, um, it's not even a correlative what God supposedly had to do. I mean, if, if an all-knowing God knew that um, his son would be sacrificed and raised three days later from the death to glorious life again, like, it's not really much of a sacrifice. Jesus had to give up a weekend, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's quite a bit different than a father choosing to sacrifice a child running down the track. In that situation, the equivalent would be like, the father knows the child will will die, but three days later will miraculously raise from the dead and be just as fine how he was before. Well, now that's an easy decision. If you knew that and it's like, okay, sure. Yeah. I'll uh, let my child die for a few days, save all these people on the trolley and then he can live again. But like, it, it's, uh, it's not at all uh, correlated with the actual atonement either. I horrible movie, horrible. That's all. <laughs> right. And I wonder like, what's the, what's the desired outcome of that movie anyway? It kind of feels like in, instead of feeling like gratitude towards the atonement, I just felt guilt and just awful inside, like awful that that had to happen because I was on a trolley basically because I'm on the train and through no fault of my own, really just my own uh, programming. I just have to somehow have some, some child die for me. Yeah. Landon? What if the people on the train, their uh, chastity was on the line from the church? They're told that you have, you, you're better to die than to lose your chastity. So if you change the situation there, you, you should have the train run off the track to protect their chastity, I guess. Yeah. Or like, what if instead of switch, pulling the switch, you have to uh, break the law of chastity? That would be like, like a real uh, mess up your mind kind of thing. It reminds me of there's some TikToks or something going around where they go around BYU campus and they say, would you rather drink a cup of coffee or would you rather, uh, you know, cut off your genitalia or something, you know, they just like extreme scenarios. Like, would you rather kill somebody or have your 
dog get tortured or would you rather uh, look at an image of a naked woman? And the and oftentimes the BYU students are saying, oh, no, no, uh, torture my puppy, please, right? So it's just messed up for sure, yeah. Uh, Rebecca? Oh, I was just going to point out that a lot of those early faith-promoting movies back in the 70s, for those of us that are older, they all involve death or things like that. I'll build you a rainbow. The mother died. Um, oh. The blood transfusion where the little brother thought that giving blood transfusion to his sister would mean he died. It was just a real way to manipulate, you know, teenagers and just make you feel, uh, so a lot of them involved uh, a lot of, I went to EFY all the time when I was a kid. A lot of the stories involved the death of a parent, guilt, things like that. It was just a way to get you in a mindset to be um, receptive to some of the other things they were going to say. So it was brutal growing up in the 70s. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Okay, so uh, I think Bruce mentioned, highlighted this, this is the idea that like, it gets a little bit more sticky, like when you have to actually hurt someone directly instead of pulling a switch. If you have to like push this big guy over the bridge to help save someone, it's not exactly the same as flipping the switch. It's kind of like saying like, well, I'm let's go down in the basement and kill the janitor and, and take out all of his organs. We could save 10 people um, in the same scenario. I mean, you're killing one person to save 10. So why should it matter? Right. Utilitarianism should say that, would say that as long as you know you do the calculus and more people come out ahead than than before then you're fine but deontology kind of throws some some nuance into this they base uh Immanuel Kant provides more than two but these are the two that are focused on in this book um two imperatives the categorical imperative which is that you should only do what you'd be willing to become a universal law and the second one is the practical imperative which is you have to treat others as an end in and of themselves and not as a means to an end. And that was where, you know, for a while there, I was reading the book and I thought of the Nephi scenario, Rebecca, as well, the killing Laban scenario. And I thought, well, from a utilitarian perspective, that actually works. Like maybe, maybe it wasn't so bad, but there were two problems with it. One is that he didn't need to kill Laban. God should have been able to make something work out, right? First Nephi 3.7. I'll, I'll, I'll make a way to make it happen without you having to kill someone, presumably. And then also, you know, when I read into, once I got into this deontology section, it helped me see why I felt so uncomfortable about Laban having to die. And that's because we were treating Laban as a means to an end rather than, um, you know, treating him as a person with his own worth. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a, a lot of scenarios that he brings up. One is that somebody is coming in with this ugly sweater, even uglier than, than Landon's or Tom's uh, outfits today and says, you know, look at this wonderful outfit. I'm going to wear this to my job interview. You think this looks good and it doesn't look good. And so you question whether you should tell them or not. Like, so from the author's perspective under deontology, you should say, no, uh, you shouldn't lie because you wouldn't want other people to lie to you. You should want a universal law where people tell the truth. Um, and, and so it violates that categorical imperative. Anyway, did anybody have any thoughts on deontology? I thought this one was a lot, I, fe I felt like this one applied to a lot of scenarios in my life, which I really, I thought that it was great. Yeah, Landon. 
one thing I found as, as I was reading through this is, uh, and, and maybe you all came up with the same uh, result, but all of these can be used in different situations uh, and, and some are more effective in one situation than it might be in another situation. So there's not really, I follow this or I follow that, but you have to kind of group them all together almost to, to come up with something. Uh, you know, sometimes gut feeling is the way you go. Uh, on the trolley problem, you know, you don't have to follow a gut. It's logic on, on the, when, they're, when you're just flipping the switch. But when you're pushing a person over the bridge, it's a gut feeling now, which is which is different. So I think different scenarios require different uh, approaches. Yeah. So I thought I thought about this too. Like, how do you decide what's the right? Because I, I could see myself picking the one that allows me to benefit the most, maybe subjectively. Like I already decide what I want to do in a situation. And then I backward through backwards induction, I retrofit one of these philosophical schools of thought into my behavior. And then I say, no, no, I'm just, I'm just utilitarian today, man. You know, like this is what I'm doing, you know, and to justify maybe the behavior that I'm engaging in, like, how do we, how do we decide which school of thought to approach? In some ways, I kind of felt like maybe in some ways, religious people are right where you know, when you take a, a secular approach to philosophy, there really isn't an objective right answer in any of this. And so, you know, there isn't a, a complete right or wrong in a lot of situations. I think where they get it wrong is that uh, there is no right, real right or wrong in their situations either. But um, yeah, Nancy? Yeah, I agree with what you just said. And I think that Michael Shore, as you know, you we near the end of the book, in my opinion he kind of answers those questions of what is the right approach I mean it's funny that he titles the book how to be perfect the right answer to every question or whatever and that's that's really not what happens in the book right there I though the message I really got out of it is do the best you can say sorry when you need to and he goes through that whole chapter on um what an apology is and bullshitting and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then you do better. To me, it's an iterative process. We look at how did I feel with that choice I made? How could I do better next time? Um, you know, and he also, anyway, I think it's, there, there isn't an objective right answer in many cases. I think you're right about that. And I think over time, we learn what feels the, maybe it comes down to what we feel or how our relationships work and those kinds of things. Um, I know that I had a really, really small thing happen after Thanksgiving. We, I was down in St. George with my family. We had tons of leftovers and I had gone to do something else and all the leftovers had been bagged up and whatever. And they said, oh, here, make sure you take some. And I looked at that and I thought, I'm probably not going to use this. Plus, I have to you know, get it home to Salt Lake. And, but I took some. When I got home, sat in the fridge for a few days, and I ended up throwing um, it out. And I, for some reason, you know, I thought, OK, this is a small thing. But I felt like, oh, I don't want to do that again. 
um, I don't know who would have used the food or how it would have been used, you know, but um, it, it just, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, okay, next time I'm not going to take something I know I'm not going to use. And yeah. even, you know, so it's just an iterative process in that um, situation. There wasn't anybody I needed to apologize to. Um, and if I need, you know, if it was that type of situation, I would have done that. But um, I think it's, it's just what we make the best decision we can at the time. And then as we learn more, as we have more experience, we realize we will pro probably in many things make a little different uh, choice or maybe a, a big difference in our choice next time. Yeah, thanks, Nancy. Yeah, I think that in the it was interesting in the book, they, he often refers back to his feelings like, I, I did this, but just something felt off about it. And so I, I knew this couldn't be right. And I was like, this is weird. This is like spirit of Christ kind of thing. Like we all know what's right or wrong inside, but there is something within us. I don't know where it comes from, but evolutionarily we tend to maybe feel what's right or wrong. And maybe we can use these to identify why. Um, yeah, Daniel, I think you were next. Yeah, Spencer, actually you just hit on exactly what I, I was gonna say is that with philosophy, and, and, and I think Michael brings us out a lot of it, you know, that this is not specific to deontology, but all the different ones. There's the same issue that we have with religion. And, and, and I like to call it the ruby slippers problem is that it was inside of us all along. You know, <laughs> all of these things are inside of us. For instance, all, all, all of these philosophical tenets and stuff, they come from inside of us. It's not like we didn't have them there and like, oh, deontology, like, it's this new thing. It's like comes down from God and is given to humanity. No, no, no. We create humans created these things because, like you said, we evolved in a certain way over millennia. And, and you know, we have these ideas of right and wrong. And all of these things, including religion and the philosophies and stuff, are post hoc ways to help us understand them. And and you know, talking about how they're most useful. Make, you know, and Michael jokes about this, right? You don't, you don't actually use these things to make split, you know, split decisions, you know, like if you have the trolley problem, you're not going to stop and think, oh my gosh, what's the categorical imperative that I have to follow here? You know, we just make these things. So they're, they're not necessarily useful for making the split decisions. I think they're most useful when we're trying, when we're finding flaws in things, you know, when someone plays the bridge for us and we're watching the bridge and we're like, wait a minute, or we're hearing the story of Nephi and Laban, and we can pull together the problems. You're like, well, that's purely, you know, uh, this fallacy, and it's going this, this type of thing. But here's these other problems, and helps understand them. And then, too, this is this is an interesting one that's coming up now, is that if we're trying to teach something non-human how to be human, like AI, this is yeah. where these kind of things come in. And like the trolley problem, the trolley problem is huge when we're teaching cars, you know, self-driving cars, what to do because they don't know. The self-driving cars don't have this evolution um, and they don't have. And they might have decisions about whether to run over one or five. Exactly. But they're going to, yeah. they, they will, these cars Literally. will face these kind of decisions, you know, yeah. and so they have to make these decisions. Um, but like I said, so it's the Ruby slippers problem and all the, all these things are inside of us, you know, um, and, and like these philosophies are, you know, find flaws in logic or, or, or spot people who are trying to manipulate us. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, Melinda? 
Um, yeah, I was just thinking um, to that question about all this, right, that uh, honestly, at times I felt almost overwhelmed reading the book just because it was so much information to kind of take in and process and, and I would be really bad at making a decision, you know, <laughs> on the on the fly about some of this really bigger stuff, but I just kept on um, coming away with kind of the same feeling every time. And, and it's that Maya Angelou or however you say her name, her little quote about, you know, do the best you can until you know better than when you know better, be do better. Right. I mean, it's all any of us can really hope for and, and, uh, you know, reading things like this definitely want me to, to try and, and do better. So I, I really enjoyed the book from, from that purpose, I guess that, that, uh, kind of time or, uh brain reference i guess just because like i said i i got overwhelmed at times so but i still yeah. can find something yeah. great about it i like that part about the book is that i found myself trying to be a better person <laughs> afterwards but it wasn't manipulative right it wasn't like this is what you got to do it was like you just kind of it kind of naturally happened uh yeah, I yeah. Agree. uh joe uh yeah so Sorry, I was kind of thinking about when Nancy was talking about the food and bringing it home and feeling guilty and stuff. And we we have this problem all the time and, and going through these like philosophical scenarios, what to do. I was reading a book earlier called The Scout Mindset. And it, that position is we are in life. We were never given a manual. We are just trying to do better. We're just trying to figure stuff out. And we should never apologize for that. We should just be adjusting our understanding. So I like how like when we like what she said, when you learn better, you do better. But there's no reason to apologize for we didn't know, you know, but but yeah, this this has been a I found it interesting in this book that like I've kind of delved into philosophy a couple times because I never took it in college. I had to learn it later on. But I always felt like there was kind of this culmination of what we figured out. But what this book kind of described is, no, there's all these different venues. And if depending on how you pick the venue, this is how you relate to life. And this is how, you know. And and under one, like under uh, utilitarianism, yeah, we just add up and do the math. Under these other things, we're like, yeah, we're, I don't know if I'm going to push my friend off the bridge to save everybody, you know, stuff like that. It's, it, it seems like there's just all these different pockets. And it, I, that never kind of gelled with me till after I was reading this. But. Yeah, me too. I think so. Like I'm trained more in economics and there's something called a corner solution, which just means you take one there's one right answer and then you just take it to the extreme, which really fed into my whole dogmatism as a Mormon, right? Like this whole idea where it's just like, there's just one solution. And seeing this, it like, it's in some ways refreshing, in some ways it's kind of hard to process a little bit, hard to, hard to accept, but it, it, it's a little more realistic about what the way life really works. So yeah, I like that comment. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Jackie, I think you're next. Yes. Um, uh, I really appreciated the book. I really, really appreciated the book. And, you know, when we're raised in this Mormon um, view, you know, it's always the evil world, right? And you read a book like this and you realize that people are just so good and that the majority, the vast majority of people want to be good. And I loved the book because it focused on people. You know, we were raised in such, it's all about laws and, and covenants and, and it's accounting vocabulary, right? And lawyer vocabulary. And this book is, you know, people and person and individual and human. 
and, you know, apologize. And it just, it just was such a joy to read that, you know, people really are good and, and we can trust that the majority of people want to do the right thing. And for me, one of the biggest existential shifts I had was that I began choosing people over doctrine or dogma. Um, people had to come first. And I think this book was just so wonderful for me to show how you do that. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. I, I think that leads into our the next one pretty well. Bruce, did you want to go first before we do that? Well, yeah, I just had a, a quick thing that I was thinking about. Okay, right now there are hundreds and hundreds of LDS wards with Sunday school, priesthood meeting, Relief Society. I don't know. I've been gone for decades, so I don't know what, what's on Sunday anymore. But could you imagine any one of those having the discussion that we're having here? You know, I mean, it's just, this is so different than what is going on inside ward houses and stuff. And then I did come up with the idea, somebody mentioned in the chat, you know, the book club is becoming a, a thing, a kind of needing merch. And I thought of a sweatshirt, the good book club where we ponderize books. Yeah, there you go. I'm making, <laughs> making fun of what whoever that <laughs> authority was that coined the term ponderize and tried to make a buck off of it. So that was yeah, there you go. Yeah, a little bit of uh, inside humor for the for the people who actually own it. That's great. I like that idea. All right, let's see. Okay. The next one, and I think this was kind of what Jackie was talking about in terms of like people interacting with other people is uh, contractualism. And then he shifts into Ubuntu, which is kind of more of a, of a, a more refined version of contractualism. But contractualism is this idea that we might have our personal preferences about how things should work, but we need to be willing to modify our private demands if reasonable people would essentially veto them in a discussion or something like that. If we were to get together as a group, as a society, and let's say I want marriage to be only between a man and a woman, we need to allow other people to veto that. And if a reasonable person would veto that, we need to allow that. Just a, an example off the, you know, the top of my head. I'm nothing, I don't know where I got that one, but uh, definitely no application to the church, right? And just the basic idea here is that we owe things to each other, right? We owe, um, something to each other because we are all in it together. So we've essentially created a contract with each other. And that helps when we have to do, when it, the question is like, should I do X? Um, the idea is, you know, would I be okay with um, creating this universal law? And would other people be okay with it? It's not just whether I would be okay with it being universal law. Would other people be willing to adopt this law as well? And then he takes it into Ubuntu, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I, I don't, I don't know where it came from. I don't know, like what it seems like it's in various African nations. I hate it when people kind of put Africa into like one blob as if it's like just one thing, even though it's a huge conglomeration of different countries and cultures. But it seems as though it's it's pretty widespread and even has different names in different countries. The idea behind it being that a person is a person through other people. We don't just owe things to other people. We owe our whole freaking existence to them in the author's words. And I am because we are. And since we are, therefore I am. This idea that we are 
intertwined with each other that we're all sort of one being i that resonated with me a lot i thought i felt like um it was very similar to the themes that we saw in braiding sweetgrass this idea that we're all interconnected that our actions don't just affect us that there's this reciprocal relationship across um all people um anyway i thought that this one was really uh enlightening landon did you have a comment on it yeah, I, I think this also kind of goes back to our last book, the Hunter Gatherers book, where uh, it's it is very cultural. I think in this sense, I I do a lot of work in Asia, and in Asia they're they're very much this way. It's it's all about the group. Uh, they kind of do that group think, and and uh, as a as a person, your duty is to your family to make them respectable. It's to your boss, to your employer. Uh, so your own happiness gets put kind of in the back burner to make uh, the, the, the society happier, I guess, uh, where when I come back to the U.S., you see so much individualism. And, and I, I can see good from both of these. So, uh, again, you know, this sounds like it's universally good, which, you know, when I see when I see them working together in Asia a lot, you know, you say, wow, that's really cool. But on the other hand, they'll work the their suicide rate is very high because they're not happy because they're trying to make everybody else happy. So I, I can see both sides, individualism versus community. And I think it goes back to, we got to go back to the other one, the golden mean, uh, Aristotle's golden mean, you got to find, you got to find a happy place in between. Yeah, that's a great point, Landon. I think this might be where he segues into like the happiness pump idea, right? Where it's like, if all I care about is everyone else's happiness then I'm just going to keep giving and giving and giving of myself until I'm, to borrow a church term, burned out, right? In terms, in terms of just always giving and never getting back and never kind of focusing on your own happiness. And that can be a problem as well. Anybody else have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, Marty and Kevin. Yeah, I was just um, thinking, um, as I was reading through this, I just realized that I think that contractualism um, for my Mormon experience is the one that comes closest to it. I, and I'm still trying to get rid of this. I owe things to others. Like if someone does service to me, I feel like, Oh, I got to serve them back. I just felt that really strongly um, at least with my experience and something to back that up is, is with this whole shopping cart problem. Um, we lived in Colorado for seven years and I've noticed that in Utah, shopping carts get returned very, very well. And in Colorado, they were returned very, very poorly. So I don't know if others have that experience um, with the contractualism that, that that kind of mimicked a moral system that they kind of felt. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that, that is, but I just realized that I think that uh, mimicked mine. Yeah, I think I could see that for sure. Um, and also that maybe it's because well, I'll let somebody else go ahead, Bruce, and I, I'll maybe elaborate on that in a second. Okay, well, I was, let's see, yesterday I was shopping at Whole Foods, and the Whole Foods where I'm at has a three-story underground parking structure, so I was on the, you know, second floor down, and it was very busy, and when I took my, all my groceries out to the car, I then went, you know, several hundred feet back to the cart return and return the cart. And that's not new for me, you know, in the discussion in the book, I'm going like, oh yeah, I do that all the time. And um, 
I sent a picture to uh, Rebecca Landon and Melinda uh, of me, a selfie returning the card. And, mm -hmm. and, and Landon says, you're an example of moral exceptionalism. And I said, or the, a poster boy for Mormon scrupulosity that was ingrained in me. And then I said, I can carry eight chairs draping the cultural hall after an activity. And I'm, um, and right at the time I was listening to Ryan Holiday interview Michael Shore on his podcast, kind of going over the same concepts. But I think in Mormonism, we're, I mean, I have, I am a rule follower. I, you know, I don't cross the street when the no walk sign is on, even if there's no one else around and there's no cars around. In, in Los Angeles, you do get tickets for that um, because people get killed here a lot crossing the street, you know, illegally. But yeah, I have ingrained in me a rule following that I think comes from the Mormon church, so. Yeah, those are great insights. Yeah, Rebecca? Yeah, the shopping cart scenario was interesting to me, and it kind of helped me understand my behavior a little bit. I was, like Bruce, a rule follower, always returned my cart. And when I stepped away a little more from the church years ago, I found myself on purpose, little tiny act of, I don't know, I thought maybe rebellion or just not doing what was right. I stopped returning my cart. And so I was fascinated by the part of the book, and we'll probably get to that, where it talked about sometimes not doing the ethical thing, exercising that part of you where you're, you know, to prepare perhaps for standing up for a bigger thing. But I never really understood until I read the book why I did that. But I, on purpose, did not return the cart. I would leave it right there. People would see me, and I drove away feeling just a little like, Hmm, I did that, you know, and I don't know what that is. Maybe I have some problems, but I on purpose and I, it correlates <laughs> with stepping away from the church, actually taking that little step of autonomy and just not doing it. I'm not going to do it. So judge me if you will, but that's what happened. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, that was your first step out of the church, probably Rebecca. Yeah. No, I actually think so. And first it seems really apostasy. small, but it was big. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Jeff, Jeffrey. Oh, you're on mute. There, there's an interesting takeoff on the cart thing. Um, on Dr. Phil, there's a guy called the cart police. And when people go out and take their carts to the parking lot and then leave them, he runs over them to them and starts yelling and screaming at them about, about being irresponsible and selfish and all this other stuff. So... Um, and, and this guy was was interviewed and he's very extreme and he seems to have nothing else to do with his time but yell and scream for people and force them to put the carts away. So I don't know whether this this guy is analogous to the ego that forces us to do stuff um, when we don't want to or other things, but I thought it was an interesting takeoff on the carts. Yeah, it kind of feels like contractualism could be man manipulative, right? So like Kevin, going back to Kevin's idea, if like the contract that's established is something that we never really fully agree to, and it's just imposed on us that this is like the image that we have to provide, and this is the way that it's got to be, then you end up trying to become this perfectionist 
that that meets the image of a good Mormon or a good X person. And that can be really damaging. Our own internal egos could even be that voice inside of us that is like trying to get us to, you know, scrupulosity, I guess maybe would might be the right word. And so maybe it depends on why we're doing what we're doing in, in these situ- situations too. Uh, Joe? Uh, yeah. So when, <laughs> when I was in college, I don't, hopefully this relates. When I was in college, we did a test about standing in line and queuing lines and how long queues go. We had to measure all this stuff, but it turns out like there's been a bunch of studies about jumping lines in queues. Uh, if you jump in line, you have a 50% chance. The guy behind you is going to say something and you have a 2% chance that anyone else is going to say something. And then we talked a little bit about why do we stand in lines anyway, right? Just walk right up to the counter and start ordering, just button line and start ordering. You've got a pretty good chance. They'll just take your order and you'll get your things. So yeah, this whole concept that we have to fit into something, we have these arbitrary rules and stuff to put in place. And uh, yeah, it it seems like that's kind of where we draw, you know, kind of to be a society and stuff. Yeah. I don't know if that really relates to what you're saying. I apologize. My no, it does. Yeah. yeah I think so. the, the whole idea of like a social contract, like why is it that we're doing all this? Yeah. Tom. Yeah. I just, for the record, I returned the cart when we're shopping <laughs> together, Rebecca and me just, just want to, you know, signal that. Um, no, but here's the thing. This is interesting. When I'm out there, like in a Costco, I, I feel like I look around and I see the people who are pushing the carts around who are collecting them and I see how much work they're doing. And I don't know if it's just an opportunity where, where everything is stripped away and it's just me and this world of Costco shopping, putting the cart away, whatever. And I just go, that's just a good thing to do. I just feel like I want to help that person. Whereas before maybe I'm thinking, well, they taught me at church, I should do this. And, and it's like filtered rather than just kind of going, well, no, this is who I am. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at the cart thing. I just mean, it's just like, I kind of see everybody who they are in the Costco car, uh, parking lot without any filters, without anybody telling me you're on the covenant path and you need to go, you know, like I just do it. With good like, voice, Tom. It sounds yeah. kind of general authority, well, authoritarian. Thank you. Anyway, so for the, for the record, I, I return the cart, Rebecca. We're going to have a talk. Good. Yeah, Laura. All right. I hope I just unmuted and didn't start video because I decided to take a lovely bath during this book club today. (laughs) All right. No, I'm just kidding. I think it's just unmuted. So um, first of all, I'm just loving this discussion. And I want to to point out with the cart scenario, and this applies so many other places, that there is always, always another way to look at it. Because I had a friend work for a department store. Um, and one of my own little like moral obligations I made for myself growing up is like, if I had like picked something up and I'm carrying around a store and then I decide not to get it, I'm going to go put it back where it came from. Right. I'm going to go put it away. Um, so that the store workers, they don't have to like worry about that and do all this extra cleanup because working in retail, I hated that. Right. But she also worked in retail and she said that it was job security, right? Like they don't need to hire so many people to take care of the store and do all the things. Um, if people were always kind of self-sufficient taking care of themselves. So I think we could apply that to the cart thing too, is like, it could be a moral, um, you know, right, if you will, thing to do to return your cart or even pick up more carts in the lot and put them back in the stall. Like, yay, good job me, I'm helping somebody. 
but like, and it would be maybe an idea like the lovely society and maybe it would help the economy, whatever else, if everybody did that. At the same time, I wonder about the people whose job it is to clean up those carts and they depend on that paycheck to feed their family. They wouldn't really like you doing their job for free because then they're not getting paid, right? So there's always, always just a different way to look at it is my point. Yeah, I agree that there's a multiple angles. And I think he does hit on something like that where it's like, well, if they've hired somebody to do it, then actually harming them directly. Yeah, Joe. Sounds like we've run into the cheaty character where he can't do anything. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I was going to one up Tom. So I figured out that when you go to the store, if you just grab a cart and take it in with you and bring it out, it's a zero sum game. Oh, there you go. Anyway, sorry. That was my joke. <laughs> but if you were to get it from the parking lot and then bring it back, you're an even better person. So yeah, Jackie. Yes. You know, I, I think the cart thing is fascinating. And I loved what Tom said. There's a point where you um, take back your own power and become you and say, you know, why am I returning the cart? Am I returning it because I was taught to do it? Or is I returning it because there's a penalty? I'll get in trouble. Or do I just do it? And um, both my daughters worked retail in high school and early college. And it really taught them a lot about humans and behavior. And they learned a lot about people who spoke to them as people, who treated them like crap, who expected them to cling up after each other. And I think those are the experiences that really teach us. These human one-on-one -on -one experiences are what change our lives and not hearing an, an emotional story that manipulates us it's these one-on-ones where you go, no, you know what? This is who I am. I return the cart. And on the opposite side of, no, you know what? I'm not going to return the cart because I'm going to break these weird ideas that I'll get in trouble or somebody's watching me and they're taking, you know, they're writing down, you know, checklists and, and that frees, you know, both, both returning the cart, and not returning the cart frees us from these outside constructs and allows us to say, who am I and what am I going to do? And, you know, we really have to disentangle ourselves, as I think everybody can attest to. We have to disentangle ourselves from our, our politics, from our church, from our cultures. I mean, I think this is what Michael Schur is trying to point out is, you know, we all have to do this kind of work. And then as an individual, who are we? And it's, 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 it's amazing work. And, and I'm certainly still in the process and an infant in it. And uh, it's really a cool thing when you say, now, wait a minute, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, um, you know, and we have these human experiences and these one-on-ones. And uh, I think that's what really changes us and what creates this ethical idea that Michael Schur coming to of, you know, what, what are our ethics? What do the right thing? Be kind. I, you know, it's just really been cool. I've loved this book. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie. Um, I'm going to go to the next one just because I think it can spur some good conversation. The author really doesn't like Ayn Rand, Rand or objectivism. This idea of rational selfishness where there are some people that are better than others or have more potential than others. 
And that if we sort of maximize our own individual utility, that we'll all be better off in the end, sort of, I think is maybe the end uh, idea of objectivism. But it really brings in, you know, some uh, gruesome trolley problems. I like the one on the bottom left. It's like, well, what if flipping the switch is the same as just putting a small piece of cloth over your mouth and nose when you're around other people for a short period of time to save five lives or however many lives, then do you pull the lever? Or if it's, you know, getting a vaccine or, um, it, but it could even get to as, uh, as ludicrous as the bottom right one where the track is heading towards track towards B, but if you pull the lever, it'll switch to A. But then it won't do that totally sick loop-de-loop. And that would really make you happy to see. So <laughs> you might as well do that one. Um, that's kind of the extreme objectivism of Ayn Rand. So yeah, Daniel. I, I would just get a comment. You know, I, I thought it was really interesting when, when I heard him talking about uh, Ayn Rand um, because my wife, when she read Ayn Rand in like late high school and, and, and early into college, she really liked Ayn Rand. And, and loved it. And I was unpackaging that and trying to figure out why it was. And what I learned is I mean, something that I thought before is that there's no one size fits all solutions for people. Everybody is so different. And this was something that I saw with my wife in the church, but my wife defaults towards kind of being a happiness pump. You know what I'm saying? So like she lives her life a lot that way. She like defers and, and wants to make other people happy. And so reading Ayn Rand, even though it's crazy, it was actually liberating for her, like, because it pulled her a little bit back towards being normal. You know what I'm saying? If you lived life like Ayn Rand, you'd be a horrible person. But for somebody like my wife, who lives as like the happiness pump and is all this stuff, Ayn Rand was great because it kind of gave her a little bit of license to think about herself a little bit. Um, and this was a problem that we actually faced in church. You know, when somebody gets up in church and they're like, you know what, you need to be more selfless, more giving. For, for somebody like me, I'm like, yeah, it's probably good. You're probably right. You know, I should be more selfless. I should be more giving. And, and it helps. And it pushes me in the right direction. But for somebody like my wife, they get up there and they're like, you need to give more, more, more selfless and more what this and this and this and that. It's horrible because it pushes her further in that direction that she's already going into and, and turns, like I said, into a happiness pump. So Ayn Rand, well, it definitely is bad for some people. For some people, it can actually be good to, to like say, hey, maybe you should be a little bit more selfish. Think about yourself a little bit more. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, I appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense to sort of, in some ways, Ayn Rand is filling some, some you know, tool, for, uh, the, some gap where people might need some Aristotelian uh, golden mean, and it's sort of helping bring you over back towards that mean. Yeah, uh, Landon? Yeah, th this is where he kind of started losing me uh, somewhat. Uh, this and some of the other, uh, uh, you know, the Chick-fil-A thing and the and the commander's thing and that kind of stuff, because I, I, I kind of said, well, okay, you haven't read Jonathan Haidt's book that, uh, you know, that there's two sides to every story. And I felt like uh, he, he was, he took his liberal politics and said, this is the way it is without looking at another side of it. You know, and if, if you look at, you know, Atlas Shrug, you know, the, the whole part of that story is, is that, you know, they're taking everything from the rich and then the rich are all leaving. And, and it's kind of like, 
okay, you can say that that's, you know, that that's selfish, but on the other hand, is it ethical to take property from one person to give it to another? How ethical is that? So I think, I think he, this is where he kind of lo lost me because I think you have to give, you have to give the same ethical consideration to someone else's ethics as you give to your own. So someone else may ethically be saying, this is my set of ethics and this is what I believe. And, you know, I didn't put away the book because I didn't agree with him. I, I went ahead and read, you know, and said, okay, I disagree with that, but I'm, I, I still bought your book and I'm still going to read it. And I think we have to make room for others. I think if you don't make room for other people's ethics, you're in, you're unethical yourself, uh, that you have to be able to make room for both. And that, that's kind of where I thought he started kind of going off the rails here because I, it's almost seemed like either you have to see things my way or they're, or, or you're wrong. And, and that I, I thought he could have been a lot more neutral in that and, and maybe given from both sides to show that there is, there is difference and people do have different ethics. I have nothing wrong with the Chick-fil-A people or they can have their Christian ethics. And, and I should respect that, that they have that. And, and that's fine. Likewise, they should respect my ethics is, is the way I saw that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Landon. Uh, Bruce. Um, yeah, let's, yeah bringing up the Chick-fil-A thing, boy, this is constant in my life. Um, I, I wrote the check for my mother to donate to Proposition 8 as her gay son. And she's on the list of, of a donor. It wasn't a real large check, but, um, you know, Chick-fil-A, my, my family loves Chick-fil-A and they have a, where, our family used to live, they had a good playground. So I would go with my brother and his grandkids to Chick-fil-A going like, I shouldn't be eating here. And then I'm going like, okay, at least I don't do hobbies. So I don't go to Hobby Lobby. And the, the Salvation Army has a big place near me and they actively work against gay people. And I'm going like, okay, not giving any money to the bell ringers in front. But yeah, these are things that as a gay person, you know, I can, I'm confronted all the time because, you know, there's Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, Salvation Army, and all these other things. Uh, we, we come in contact, you're going like, okay, do I support something that is so against what I think? And, and I think those are kind of dilemmas that we have to each approach and decide on. Yeah, I appreciate that, Bruce. And it's, it's interesting because you as a gay man shouldn't be the only, if I'm not a gay person, I should be willing to um, in some way engage in this conversation or these ethics on your behalf as well. Like I should, it shouldn't just be gay people that should be engaging in the calculus about whether it's right or wrong to uh, eat at Chick-fil-A. And, um, but at the same time, it's kind of like, well, what difference is it making what is the end, uh, you know, you look at it from a utilitarian perspective, is my chicken, is my one purchase of chicken sandwich going to make a difference? And there's just a lot to think about in these, in these types of situations. Um, there's no real obvious answer, I feel like, in, in a lot of these. Yeah, Mylene? Uh, one of the things that I, I'm reminded of when we talk about Ayn Rand and and what and Bruce and Chick-fil-A and stuff like that and Proposition 8 was it donations? 
is that um, about 20 years ago, there was a newscaster named John Stossel that did a program on greed. And one of the things he did in the program is he pointed out that what what the world would be like if you didn't have greedy people because you know people that were entrepreneurs people that you know wanted to have more and more and more these people you know no matter what you think of them they build organizations they build railroads they you know they are the ones that that get infrastructures going that that make all of what we tend to enjoy um possible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Ayn Rand just stopped a little bit short. She didn't, she didn't take that beyond and say, well, okay, that's good to a certain point. But then what happens after that? I think that's why we have governments and stuff is to moderate this kind of greed and, and stuff and, and to, you know, keep people from completely dominating and becoming oligarchs and whatever in society. Um, so I think this is another case where we just need a far more nuanced view. There's a really good course that you can take for free from Harvard University by Michael Sandel called Justice. And um, it it goes along these topics, and he, he even uses the trolley ex, uh, experiment in part of his uh, lecture series. It's really, really good. But I think that the the issue here has to do with this taking a very nuanced view of how you approach each of these different topics. Yeah, I agree with you, Mylene. It, it gets hard because if we go back to the trolley problem for me, it's almost as if somebody else is pulling the lever and hurting people and objectively I see this as wrong. So then do I have a moral obligation to sort of impose my, what I think is objective ethics upon someone else? Is, is it right for me to try and assert my view on the church because I think it's the harm that it's doing is objectively wrong, right? So it's like, in some ways we have, to, it, uh, it would be nice to, to be able to do that. Uh, I don't know like what the right answer is, but it again turns into another ethical question of like, for example, the latest uh, Freedom for Marriage Act. On one hand, you know, it's great that like the, the country as a whole, from my perspective, is, is allowing gay marriage to happen. Um, recognizing gay marriages once they are um, official. But then suddenly there's this like clause that for, but if you believe a little bit differently and those beliefs are religious related, then it's suddenly okay. And it's like, well, why are we deciding as a society? What about contractualism, right? Like I thought that like we were allowed to veto if these things were not okay. And so I, I, I struggle with this a lot. Maybe it's just because of my Mormon upbringing where I'm taught to be very confident and certain in that my belief is the right belief. And I think maybe that still holds true today, but yeah, Rebecca. Yeah, if anyone is watching the World Cup, uh, you can see mm -hmm. this play out on a world stage right now where the World Cup is in Qatar 
and definitely different sensibilities, different uh, morals, different rules. And everyone in the world is showing up and they want to wear their um, rainbow armbands or they want to wear their rainbow t-shirts not being allowed to come in, being harassed, teams um, given yellow cards if they want to try to have anything on their uniform, which a lot of them do to support LGBTQ, anything like that. And so you see that right there where the whole world has come to this country and the world has said, while you're here, you know, the country has said, while you're here, you can't do what you ethically would like to do. So it's been very interesting to watch and see the different reactions from different people. I don't know if anyone else has been paying attention, but it's, it's, I mean, in some cases that people are like, like there's been violence against people that show up in a, um, you know, a shirt supporting LGBTQ. So it's been really interesting to watch. Yeah. I think that's a good example. I think the author talks about like a line that you draw and the line is always going to be somewhat arbitrary, but then you draw the line somebody else is going to draw the line somewhere else in terms of like what's right or wrong and you might draw it somewhere else but what's important is that we're thinking actively because some people might be saying no Rebecca I'm not watching the World Cup because I'm that I drew the line where I'm not going to watch it and support it right and then other people are watching it but they're not supporting it in any other way or right and so there there could be maybe that's where I have to be more willing to accept other people's conclusions um, that they make. But um, the next one, this is kind of jumping ahead in the book, but there's another philosophical uh, school of thought that he kind of pushes himself, pushes pretty heavily, which is existentialism. Um, lots of different ideas in, within existentialism um, that sometimes I struggled with, sometimes I could find some value in um, the idea that human existence is just absurd. I liked this uh, quote where, um, I can't remember which one of the two it was, uh, um, but it was man first exists, encounters himself, and only afterwards defines himself. And so therefore, because we just exist, and it's absurd that we exist, all that we have are our choices. And they take it to this next level, which I'm not exactly sure what the leap is that gets this logical leap to get us from all we have is our choices, existence is absurd, none of this matters, and then therefore we should make choices that model behavior for all of humanity. That part was a little bit hard for me to grasp. Um, but um, the second person that uh, he highlights within existentialism says we have three choices to address the absurdity of our existence. Number one, we can take ourselves out of the equation and kill ourselves. I thought that, you know, there's actually a maybe a happy medium here where like you just don't have future children. You don't actively kill yourself, but you let humanity die off. Um, a second one would be to embrace some structure, shared myth, maybe drawing from sapiens and find some meaning in it. Um, but this seems to be like a delusion within existentialism and saying you're just deluding yourself. Um, and the third is to just acknowledge the fundamental absurdity of the human condition and just exist within it. And uh, just, you know, embrace the hurricane that is this randomness that exists, this chaos. Um, so I thought this was an interesting one. I don't know what anybody else thought. Uh, Jackie? Yeah, for me, and again, you know, this is straight out of my own lenses, but if you've studied James Fowler's Stages of Faith, um, or uh, Brian McLaren wrote one on the Stages of Faith, 
the, the stage, you know, you come out of after not believing in religion is, is, you know, major skepticism, you know, the BS monitors up, you're angry, you're critical. And I kind of thought, I wonder if Camus and all these people, you know, they come out of, they're out of Europe, they're, aren't they French philosophers? You know, they've been through the 30 years war, World War One, World War Two, they've seen the corruption of the Catholic Church, like, like they've lost all the romantic, they've lost all the religious um, myths, you know, uh, they've had major existential crisis, right? And they're left with, well, life's absurd. And I just thought, man, they are smack in stage four. And to me, the thing I thought was absolutely amazing, and, and you know, you can relate it today to a lot of people with nihilism, is that they still said, make a good choice, you know? do something that's the best for humanity. And I thought, God, that just hit me as powerful that they're in this spot of they've lost all former belief, they've lost hope, they think it's absurd, they've deconstructed it to there's nothing. And yet they're still like, well, you know, make a good choice. You know, there's other people besides you. It just kind of blew my mind. And I I can't take it beyond that. My brain doesn't, doesn't go further than that. But I just saw it as that's where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. Um, Landon? Yeah, maybe maybe I misunderstood existentialism as I was reading it, but this one really resonated with me, uh, especially after leaving, you know, leaving religion where I was maybe in that you always obey, you obey the rules, kind of the Kant uh, model or whatever. And and now that I've become an atheist and I don't believe in God, I don't believe that there's something beyond. It is kind of, I, I wouldn't say human existence is absurd. Uh, I think we really have no, no more purpose than the animals have in the end. Uh, you know, we came, we lived and we, we, re, we passed on and, and, and developed our, our species or whatever that we're supposed to do. But, uh, but to me, the, the fact where, where he came back and they said, you know, it's your decisions now and you own those decisions. And I thought that's to me, that's beautiful. I got to make a decision and I got to own it right, wrong and different. I get to own that. And sometimes I'm going to make a wrong decision and I can, I can improve on that and and make it better next time. Uh, But in the end, it's me. I have to make these decisions. It's no, no one else is going to make them for me. God's not there to make them for me. The uh, religion isn't there to make them for me. It's on me. It's my decision. I love that part of the existentialism. He really seemed down on that, but and and to say, well, we're all going to disappear. How dis- depressing and all that. And I'm going, well. On the other hand, it gives you a, a, a whole new way to look at things. That this is all we get. Live it to the fullest. Make the most of what you have. And I don't see that that's necessarily depressing. So I I did have some problems with with this, and and maybe I misunderstood existentialism. But uh, that's that was my thoughts. No, I, I agree with you in terms of it's refreshing to not have like an afterlife of like whatever the decision is that you make now is going to have this like huge effect on your future. Um, so it is a little bit of a happy medium, because on one hand, in the church, I was taught the choices you make now are so fundamental. You, you all you do have is your agency. But man, you better make the right choice. And and. This one is more about accepting personal responsibility for your choices and just embracing it, which is interesting because I, it reminds me of when my wife and I were first first got married. We didn't have a lot of money. So when we go out to eat, 
the server would come up and they would ask if we wanted any drinks. And I always felt a little bit guilty because I know a lot of their tips and the stuff come from like the drink bill going up. And so we'd always just say, oh, just water. And I always felt like there was this external reason that I was saying just water. And I felt bad for the for saying, I'm just going to have water. I don't know why. But we switched to saying, I would like water, please. Like, I choose water. Thank you. Like, this is my choice. And it really changed everything for us. Like, it, all of a sudden, it, isn't, it wasn't like this uh, feeling like um, the world is imposing on us or anything like that. We were embracing our choices. We were owning them. And it changed everything in terms of just the outlook that we had on life. So, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said, Landon. That's good. Uh, Brian? <clears throat> yeah, um, kind of echoing what Landon said. Landon, I think you're spot on. Michael Schur seemed really down on existentialism, but I think he does miss um, some of the beauty of it. For me, with my faith deconstruction and going from a pretty brief uh, nihilism phase where I was like, nothing has any meaning, kind of bleak, um, fortunately, it didn't last very long for me, but existentialism kind of raised me out of that. It's like, okay, nothing has an inherent meaning from my perspective. There's no like outside external source that gives all of this life meaning, um, which can be a bleak outlook. But what existentialism offered me is like, okay, I get to create my own meaning then. I get to choose what is meaningful to me, um, what matters to me, and I make that choice and I can live according to that. And to me, that was beautiful. That was like what lifted me out of kind of a, a pretty bleak outlook on life for a little bit. Um, and I, I love that I get to choose that meaning. And for me, it's pretty simple. Like I, my, I want to, to thrive and to flourish, you know, something that, uh, that kind of sure does echo in the Aristotelian uh, golden mean but everyone gets to decide what flourishing looks like for themselves individually. And as long as their personal flourishing isn't imposing on anyone else's flourishing, then I don't have a problem with that. And I want to respect and honor and contribute my part so that everyone has the best chance to flourish again with that caveat that as long as it doesn't impose on anyone else's, because there are certain beliefs that people can hold that through that beliefs can impose on someone else's, but as long as it doesn't, yeah, like kind of live and let live. You get to decide what flourishing means to you. And we are all here on this earth together and we can all contribute to each other's best chance of flourishing. And that's kind of my outlook. And so Lynn and I agree, like existentialism, like gave me something that's like, oh, I get to choose and I can choose something that is beautiful and meaningful to me. Yeah, thanks Brian. I like how you juxtapose an existential crisis from existentialism and embracing it, two very different things for sure. Yeah, uh, Melinda? I think this was part of the book that confused me a little bit, only because I have watched all four seasons of The Good Place and how strongly he felt about this to the ending of the, I don't wanna give it away, but anybody who I has seen all of it, <laughs> like to me, that was the beautiful part was the ending and, and it, I don't know. I guess it just didn't really gel in my head. And maybe we really can't have a conversation about this for those who haven't seen the end of it. But but that part, I guess, was a little bit like, huh, <laughs> type of thing to me. Yeah. On a side note, Melinda, I do think Michael Schur created a much better plan of salvation than anything we ever were taught in the church. I was like, man, he did, a, he did a much better job. Like, how come it covered all of his bases? 
And like you didn't leave no, anybody seriously. out. And it kind of like took me off guard. I was like, what? Like yeah, I was like, okay, I'll take what that. A yes. thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh Rebecca? Yeah, I agree about the ending of the good place. Um, <clears throat> I've talked about it. I'm not giving it away. I've talked about it before how I Pimo since birth. None of the church ever made sense to me. I never knew what was going on and especially, you know, uh, what was going to happen after life. But this is, I think, why also existentialism resonated with me because, you know, my whole life I've heard people in the church saying, I don't know why God told me to do that. I don't know why God told me to do that. And it didn't work out. It's like people are puppets or shells where they're getting some kind of download of what to do. I never understood what they were talking about, but it seemed to me they weren't living their own lives. Um, my parents were that way. We don't know why God told us to do this, make this decision. It's just like existentialism said to me, no, be your own person, make your own decision. There's nobody pulling your strings. You're not a puppet. Um, it's not a crutch. You own your decision. If it's a bad decision, you did it, you own it, uh, you face the consequences and move on. So uh, to me, it was exactly the opposite I think of what I experienced growing up in the church where everyone seemed driven by almost a puppet master making decisions for them and everyone's always on high alert listening for signals as far as what they were trying to do what is the spirit telling me what is God telling me and again I'm different I was always Pimo I never understood what they were talking about but to me that part of existentialism that you know you are you you're in charge of your own signals you know trust your gut uh, that part was appealing to me yeah, there's, I mean, and there's also this idea of like existentialism highlights the fact that we exist and like, that's a, that's a positive thing as well. That can be very positive. So yeah, I like everything you said there, Rebecca. Thanks. Uh, Bruce? Yeah, you know, I related to the existential thing a lot. Um, I know when I kind of realized that I didn't believe the narrative that the Mormon church gave about how the world works. Um, you do kind of enter a little bit of like nihilist viewpoint, like, okay, if, if none of this is real, why? But then I, it, I never stayed in that feeling very long because it's the main reason why I'm like a member of the book club and the different organizations I'm with is, you know, trying to figure out, okay, if all this narrative of how the world works that I was raised with isn't accurate, then how do I fit in? And then how do I fit in to make me have a good life? And I'm 65 and, you know, I've got, if I'm lucky, a quarter of my life left and, you know, how am I going to live that? But then also, how am I going to fit in with everyone else so that everyone has a good life? The book club, um, you know, uh, Landon and Rebecca and Melinda came down uh, and we went to the play with Karin. And, you know, Karin and I are part of the Pasadena Village, which is a kind of community religion replacement organization where we do things together, do things with each other, but nobody is telling you how to live your life or what to do, what to think. And so I've kind of found that organization and the book club and some other stuff that I do things with is where, how I fit in. Uh, and all these books kind of, you know, help give me a better understanding. So yeah, existentialism kind of spoke to me a bit. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. 
Um, okay, so let's go to the next one. I think that there were, I only have a couple more slides. There were a lot of sticky situations. We brought up a lot of these already. Chick-fil-A, the Washington Redskins, uh, formerly known as the Washington Redskins. Um, maybe we haven't really highlighted really this idea of um, shaming versus guilt that he brought in and the idea of like, he used to tip his barista at uh, Starbucks, but he'd always make sure that the barista was turned around so he could see, the barista could see that he had tipped them. Um, and then also, would you, like, do you have a moral obligation to jump in to a burning building to try and save someone? Like, you know, at what point do you, uh, do you self-sacrifice or, or not? We do, I think we highlighted that a little bit. So I don't know if there were any other, like, either in the book that you thought was were interesting or in your own life, like maybe some ethical dilemmas that made you think of as you were reading the book that might have been um, something worth highlighting. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was thinking just the other day I was I was shuttling kids around. I was driving around. I was going to the store, picking up stuff. And I'm like, why am I doing all this stuff? Nobody even cares about me. What the crap? <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I kind of had to process through that. Am I doing this because I like to do it? Am I doing it because I'm supportive? Because I'm not getting a lot of appreciation? Am I doing, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You kind of have those days where you're just like, okay, what is going on now? But yeah, it's it was fun to have like all these, these all these different kind of tools, I guess, in this book to go, yeah, you know, you could you could give a dime and and expect to be paid for, you know, give a tip, even though it's small and you know, try to win the glory out of that or, or just let it go, you know? Anyway, I just, the book was interesting. I heard it on audiobook and I was impressed that uh, somebody said it was good. I kept getting all the footnotes along the way and it was very distracting, but I may have to go back through as an, as reading the book, but yeah, a lot of good stuff in there. So yeah. Thanks yeah, for I, I, yeah. I think even reading it uh, paperback version, you're still going to get distracted because what I did is I kept wanting to read the footnotes because I thought they were so funny. So they still ended up distracting me. But yeah, to your point, um, I could see how that would be the case. But I, I also agree that it sort of started making me think about what it was that I was doing and why I was doing it. And I could see it turning into like a scrupulosity issue, like with Chidi and The Good Place, where it's like, you're always worrying about whether you're doing the right thing um, morally. Um, but at the very least, there's all these like automatic things that I just never thought about in my life, just things that are just with or without the church, just structured for us within Western culture or within my own just insular upbringing or whatever it might be. And I just do it without thinking about why I do it. And um, so even just being a little more mindful and thoughtful, uh, this book has kind of helped a little bit with that. Yeah, Melinda? Um, I really liked the example that he gave about the uh, fender bender and the scratch on the fender. Um, I was when he first started describing it, having been in similar situations, but maybe on the reverse end of his story. But I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a brilliant idea. Like, let something good come of it, you know. And and so I, I it almost took me aback when he started, like, going through the process of why that wasn't really a good idea. And I think it was one of my favorite examples because I got so on board so quickly with it. And then he really took me step-by-step step through the process and it was really eye-opening. I, I really enjoyed that, that particular story a lot. 
Yeah, the shame one was interesting because he like he still sides on this idea that like shame still has a place in our society, like a, a real a, a good it can be a good thing in some cases. I thought it was really interesting because I think a lot of people would say that there has to be some sort of, I don't know like exactly how, but like that there's some way to like induce guilt, but not shame. And I don't exactly know what that would be, but on one hand, shame does tend to be effective in certain scenarios. Like I was saying earlier before the book club started, I have a case study in a class that I teach where we talk about the ramifications of people that are outsiders of companies and they shame the companies into paying more taxes because they think that the company should be paying more taxes to society. And you think about the 60 minutes uh, report in Canada on the church, you know, funneling its charitable contributions to BYU and, and how people in Canada are upset about that or in Australia or there, these are shame based mechanisms and they can be effective, I guess. So I don't know where you fell on this because on the other hand, shame was such a powerful uh, sort of blunt tool that was used in my, especially in my upbringing in the church. I, uh, I tend to think that it's not a very nice thing to do to shame others. So I don't, I don't know like where other people fell on that. Yeah. Uh, Landon. I, I just looked at it as, you know, because we were we were growing up in a in a church that shamed you for everything, even natural things that you would do as a natural person. That that I probably have this real bias against shame now, uh, and I think most people who didn't grow up in a high demand religion probably see the good in shame because they weren't tortured by it or they weren't forced to do something by it. So. I think there's good shame and bad shame. I think there's things you should be shamed about uh, if you're acting in certain ways. Um, that's how society kind of keeps people in line, but it shouldn't be for things that are natural and it shouldn't be, you know, it should be for, if, if you're shaming them for their, for, for the good of society, that may be more, you know, there's an ethical dilemma there. Uh, am I shaming for the betterment of society or am I shaming for my own personal uh, get which that's what I felt the church was doing it was shaming you to create a problem that only they could solve and therefore they'd always shame you and it was it was selfish reasons that they were shaming not for uh, the good of the society yeah that's a great point and at some point I kind of think that like I felt ashamed just for existing right and it, it reminds me of like uh, in the book uh, God is Not Great that we also read by Christopher Hitchens, he quotes somebody, and I don't remember what it is, but this quote always stuck with me, which was, oh, wretched state of man um, created sick and commanded to be well, which is this idea that like we're basically shamed into thinking like here we are created, programmed a certain way, and we're told that a lot of the things that we're programmed to do and just naturally do are things that we should be ashamed of. They're sins, right? And so uh, there's this idea that like we were created this way and then we're told to be feel bad about it. And um, it kind of felt like those were, there were undertones of that as I, as I grew up. And like you said, if it's not going to work towards creating a better society, or if there's no fix for the shame that you, it's being induced, if there's really no solution, like what good does the shame do in, in, in that case? Um, and that was helpful because I do tend to think that maybe the church should be shamed in certain things, which uh, brings to the last point, I think, 
this is the last slide, but you know, we can just kind of keep going however long it needs to be, but um, which is how much do we really owe each other? And the idea here was just sort of this concept that there are certain organizations, certain people that maybe have more than others. And the idea is that, you know, they have their calculus in terms of what is a moral decision should be different than the calculus of other people's. Um, not only because they have the resources to think about this, these issues, but also because, you know, they have the ability to really create a lot of change and a lot of goodness in society. So he talks about privilege, you know, if you're born a straight white male, you're sort of starting a video game on the easy setting. Whereas if you're born poor or you're born, you know, in a different country or you're born um, a, a minority in, in any sense of the term, um, you're, you're, you know, at a different level. And so that means that your ability to make choices, the choices that you make and whether they lead to better outcomes, whether you even have certain choice sets available to you um, could be different. And um, he also highlights, I thought this was a cool analogy about effective altruism, which was this idea that like, let's say you're wearing some really expensive shoes and you see a child uh, drowning in the river or something like that. And you say, ah, but these really expensive shoes of mine, you obviously wouldn't sacrifice. You would be willing to sacrifice your shoes for saving a child. You jump right in. Um, but we don't tend to do that same calculus when we buy those same shoes on Amazon or whatever it might be. Even though those shoes could be the dollars towards those shoes could be used towards helping save starving children, essentially. And so uh, when we sort of put a price on the life of what it is, the, the opportunity cost of all of the things that we do purchase or the actions that we engage in, going back to shaming, hopefully this doesn't induce too much shame, but it does kind of bear a heavy burden on us, I think. Um, so I don't know if any people had a thought on this. I felt like the church was really prevalent in my mind as I read through this. I thought about all the good it could do. Um, I had a conversation recently with somebody who's, uh, involved in this, the finances of the church. And um, this is his idea, uh, idea, but I really, it stuck with me, resonated with me, which is that in the last, you know, 10 years learning about the church's finances, it's not so disappointing that, um, that the church, you know, isn't doing what it's doing or that it, you know, that it, that it isn't succeeding at solving world hunger or anything like that. It's that it had the opportunity to be the organization that is the most Christ-like organization in the world. And it's not that it didn't do it. It's just that it didn't even try. The fact that it didn't even try to, to do what Christ would probably imp uh, demand is really difficult to swallow. Um, so yeah, any points on this one, uh, Daniel and then Bruce? Uh, just commenting on what you're just saying. I, I, I told my wife, like, you know, there are the revelations about the church finances that came out in what, 2019, I think, these revelations that the church has, you know, $150 billion or more, basically just in, in, in money sitting around doing nothing in this charitable fund. And then also the pandemic hits. And I told my wife, I was like, this is the, like, this was the opportunity for the church. Almost prophetic, right? Right, right, right. They could be like, this is, this is why we, you know, everyone was wondering why we were saving so much money. This is the reason. Yes. $50 billion. 
and, 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 and like spread it around the world for pandemic relief. And everyone would be like, wow, wow, that Mormon church, they were so prophetic that saved all this money, but they did nothing. You know, they did nothing with the money. And like I said, just from a purely PR perspective, what is shocking, right? What is, yes. wrong, what is wrong with them? Right. What is wrong with them? I mean, like putting aside the whole Christ-like virtues and everything, you know. Um, but and then one other point that I had was it, it's really interesting because, like you said, like they have all this money and they don't do anything. They're not altruistic. They don't. They do so little. But then, on the other hand, listening to the talk about happiness pumps, the church encourages every one of the members on an individual basis to essentially be a happiness pump, like give of yourself, you know, give, give more, give more, do more, give away more. There's always more you can do. And so they would really encourage us on our individual level, basically to give up, you know, they, they actually say like, lose yourself, right? Lose yourself in giving, give up everything that you are. And that's your key to happiness. So the irony is palpable. It's insane that on the one hand, they're sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars and they do almost nothing. But on an individual basis, they encourage us to basically, like I said, be a happiness pump. Just give everything you have away and and dedicate yourself to the church and to people and just lose yourself, you know, diminish yourself, fade away into nothing. Yeah, a window to his love or whatever, right? (laughs) Lots of ideas there that kind of resonate. And like you kind of are mentioning, Daniel, it's like, take any of the philosophical views that we talked about today, even Ayn Rand's, and the solution should be do something with this money. Because even if you're an objectivist, during the pandemic, as you're mentioning, the church could have really honed in on that and taken it a strategic opportunity. Con- conversion could have gone through the roof. People could have, you know, people would have been in much better opportunity and much better uh, position to donate future tithing. Uh, The missionary program could have taken off. It's just really confounding where it it just muddles the mind when you think that like under any ethical framework, they should be doing something. Whether it's a biblical one, even if it's like hiding your talents in the ground, it's like everything points in this direction of like, you should do something. So it's a, the ineptitude there is a little bit uh, a little bit shocking for sure. Uh, Bruce? Yeah, I just, um, on the effect of altruism, I was listening to Sam Harris and that guy that kind of was head of the cryptocurrency that went uh, yeah. under, he was the poster child for effective altruism. And he was, yeah. And Sam Harris says, you know, I've taken down all my interviews and stuff because he wasn't what, you know, he was saying he was. And it it brought to mind, it raises a red flag with me anytime someone says, oh, I'm a good Mormon or I'm a good Christian. Because I'm going like, hold it, red flag, beware of this person, because when I've run into that, it, it's right before they're trying to do something to my disadvantage. We had a, a person dealing with our family business, but always goes, yes, I'm a good Christian. I go like, okay, we don't trust him at all. My father, a believing member, temple worker until he died, owned an insurance agency. And he preferred not um, doing business with members of the church. He was a bishop, you know, 12 years in that area. And so a lot of the members were insured with him 
but the only person he ever had that really caused a problem on an ethical stuff was a member of the church. And so, you know, the effect of altruism and things like that always makes me kind of wonder when somebody touts that about what they're doing. But um, yeah, it's interesting. And then the church's whole thing on what they could do good with their money, with their buildings, even, could you imagine the, the Relief Society running a daycare for low-income moms so that they could go to work? And you've got these women that have raised, you know, very large families and know how to deal with a bunch of kids. And you could have this whole thing going, you know, on a volunteer basis. So just my thoughts. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. Um, Landon. Yeah, this, this picture is really telling here where you've got um, Bill Gates on the top and the, and the church on the bottom. And you look, you know, Bill Gates has had some uh, uh, problems lately uh, with people calling his moral, you know, into question and whatnot. And yet, I believe he said he's going to give 100% of what he's earned away to charity. And then you look at the church, who all you hear about is how great they are and what good things they do, and yet they're giving their money away to nobody. Uh, it, it's almost like the the immoral person has the greater morals than the than the organization whose whole job is to teach morals. Uh, and I, in the book, I, I highlighted this section. They talked about the Catholic Church and uh, how the Catholic Church uh, apologized for uh, what they did to Galileo, the Pope. The Pope did. And then he, he, he just brings up a kind of a, a side note. And he just said, if instead of apologizing, the Pope had said, we never did this. Historians are wrong. And also the church has done a bunch of good charitable work and we'll never apologize for our faith in God. Well, that wouldn't Shoot. be an apology. That would be, you get it, you know? And yeah. when I read that, I just went, wow. It felt a little too familiar. Yeah, too familiar. So I, I really thought that applied really well. <laughs> Yeah. Also, it never happened. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we never did that. We never hid that. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, that's a great point. That did that juxtaposition there, that contrast was pretty poignant. Um, anybody else have any comments on this? I don't know what time it is or what, how far we usually go. I usually bail after an hour and a half because I got kids. But uh, so you, I never made expensive. it to the end. I don't know what happens. You guys eat like I think Melissa has one. Oh, Melissa, Melissa has a comment. Oh, Melissa. Okay. Okay. So mine's just kind of a fun thing. For those of you that don't know me, I'm very new at this whole thing. And so I had this, well, to give a really quick background, I had two state callings when I left the church. My husband still is in the high council. And so uh, when I asked to be released from my callings, the stake presidency obviously wanted to talk to me about that so they asked hey can we have a conversation and I said sure and so during this conversation I kind of just threw it all out there I wasn't very nice but you guys it was so much fun to have this conversation and say I do not assign morality to coffee I don't assign morality to drinking I don't assign morality to tattoos I don't assign morality to piercings and all of these things that I'd spent 45 years being told, oh, if you do this, this, and this, you're 
it's bad or you're a bad person or you're not going to go to heaven for drinking coffee and to just sit there and have a stake president's member and then me being able to say no i reject it i reject all of this oh my goodness it was so cathartic to just say that's not my morality anymore i don't accept that i i reject what you guys are doing to this lgbt community and you guys need to fix it and get your crap together it was just lovely to have my own sense of morality and my own sense of what I believed and not have to accept the morality from somebody else that had been really weighing on me for so many years. I wasn't like Rebecca, like Rebecca said that, you know, she, her whole life, she had been struggling with this. I was a absolutely firm believer. So these things just kind of hurt me and weighed on me where the church is true. So I still have to believe it, but it really hurts me. And so to be able to have this person and say, nope, I reject it. I reject all of it. It felt amazing. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Yep. That's, that's awesome. Alisa. Thank you for sharing that perspective that I think uh, a lot of us can relate to that. So do you have any final uh, words, Spencer at all to wrap up or are we just saying we're finished? Gosh, I think we could talk for another couple hours about this it's amazing i mean i don't have anything left except for watch the good places it's, it's a good <laughs> video and i want to have that that i want to be able to have that conversation that melissa had that sounds awesome yeah that does sound <laughs> very awesome. cathartic yep the cognitive dissonance is real even if we don't realize it so all right can let's say, go to our I, can i say one thing really quick oh sure but no one thing that just been weighing on me or just kind of in my mind was Going back to what Daniel said, Daniel, where are you? There you are. Um, just the, 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 it's been in us and he articulated it and I, not to rehash it, but I, I just think like, maybe this is a sapien thing going back two years when we read sapiens, but humans have been around a long time. And before we labeled all this shit, sorry, we, we, we were here. Yeah, Daniel, thank you. Thank you. Um, I just need one, Daniel, uh, that we've been here and we've been working this stuff out. And it seems like we've, we've, we've been, or at least our group, we were put into a box of sorts, not you, Karin, but we kind of locked down. And it's like we're reborn again in a weird way, but we we're realizing We've always been good. I don't know how humanity would survive if we didn't have some good. This goes back to my humanity training in, in, in college and my humanity courses that I took, that there was this good. We, we, we had to have some sort of affinity towards other people and wanting to help them. But as Mormons, we, 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 we thought, oh, we're doing this because they told us to do this on the well, they call it now the covenant path, whatever. And it's disturbing to me now to realize maybe this stuff was always here. I always was me because of me. And we've been here because we were us, because we wanted to survive here. We wanted to get along here. And now we live in times where we're really, really pushing that, where we're trying to figure out how to get along with everybody. And we need to have these conversations be open rather than the church maybe saying we're going to isolate ourselves and you know do it our way or go to hell and, and that's not that's not helpful but anyway i i had that thought daniel when you said all that in the beginning i was like that's how i think it's always been here what happened 
You, you and Daniel, you and Daniel are soulmates. It's obvious. Amen. So, no, and, and I think it takes it back almost full circle to what I said at the very beginning, where we're told if you step away from your religion, how in the world will you be moral? How will you be ethical? And, you know, it reminds me of my parents who uh, they're very much like that, but they use this phrase like a, a Baptist a youth group came to their house to rake their leaves, their elderly, and they told me about it. And they said this, these youth children from a Christian church came. I mean, they're still good people still they're good you know i mean they're doing this incredible service and yet my parents um just have this mindset almost a shock that someone outside of the church would would still be a good person so yeah eyes wide open and this book i think really helped it i just want to remind everybody there are different ways to connect with us if you haven't already we do most of our discussion on facebook so um you can look us up on facebook and join if you haven't done that we're also on instagram um if you're not so much into social media and you'd like to get links and information, you can just send me an email at thegoodbookclubmail.com. And if you do that, uh, check your spam because for some reason it tends to go to spam a lot. So spam a lot. I just said spam a lot. So um, what we do next, because we're always hell bent on having a three hour block, it's just in our blood, <laughs> is if you'd like to stay on, we just kind of talk. We talk about the book. We talk about other topics. We get to know new members. So if you'd like to just stay on, um, go get yourself a cup of tea or something, and we will uh, just chat.